You're listening to On the Path with Charlie Kyle, Zach Rudis, and John Grosowskis. Very nice, John. I like that intro. Now, time is of the essence, equality, Eden, eternity, four E's. Eden, eternity, equality, essence. I come back to that often in my thinking, often in my talking, often in, in my life, that those four E's, Eden, eternity, equality, essence, they're like liberty, fraternity, equality. They're um, a set of... It's an um, ethos. Yeah, a, a, an atmosphere. They're, uh, if the, they interpenetrate with each other, Eden and eternity. and It's like a book title. It's like, um, I don't know, sum up of a lot of important things. And then on the 12-8 path, and there are many paths in this world, 12-8 is just one of them. Because this worldview or Weltanschauung, world outlook, turns and revolutes on a radical, spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E, rooted, like radicals coming off the root, main tap root, or coming off the stem. It's a technical botanical term, radicals, mm-hmm. or radical, not C-A-L, which is the inflammatory Trump word for us or those alternative antifa others. I suppose that the etymology on that is related, though. They're almost the surely rad, from the, the same. The rad part is yeah. is an atom, an atom. You know, it's a very important on the fringes, sort of. But the ra- I- ickle is like you know um, the little rootlets, mm-hmm. the radicals. Uh, that's the kind of radical I'm always talking about, or almost always, a radical rooted definition of our species being homo nudens collaborans, facing and enjoying what Harvey Jackins insisted on calling benign reality. And in between having this little poem that I thought we'd start out with, or some part of it, I went and looked up Harvey Jackins and what it is that he had left behind. He, I don't know when he died, some years ago. He started a movement called, um, uh, re, not reclaiming, reevaluation counseling. And Angie and I were part of that movement. Angie got it started with a couple of friends in Buffalo for 10 years. I did co-counseling with Harvey Jackins as the guru who uh, had laid down the rules about benign reality. And then he wrote a second book called Total Benign Reality because he wasn't getting it across to his satisfaction. And I see those two terms, the humo ludens collaborance, the Latin for uh, our species being, humorous, playful, collaborating, and Harvey's notion of benign reality behind all this crud and tifos and the fog of war, the fog of capitalism, the fog of all these different systems that loosen the world that are filling up space, filling up time, filling up the atmosphere, taking up the energy. When you walk into any room, you're going to come across fake news of all different kinds and all kinds of layers. And it's into that um, kind of fog or tifos, as the ancient Greeks called it, or the currency, the common misunderstandings that we all labor under, 
it's into that that music seems to me like um, the lotion, the cure, the solution, the the model of how things might be if three musicians got together and made this music, any other three musicians could do it. Or here's a duo, or here's a solo. What you do on a Sunday night is an amazing synthesis of a whole lot of good musicking that's gone on for many, many years before you, and you're just there pulling it all together in that one evening, one moment, one time, and it works well enough that you take home a pretty good paycheck. I think that's the um, the only thing that I've had to add to 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 life or to, to the world that I came into is this notion that music is somehow what holds religion and politics together. I got that idea from Malcolm X that you need both a religious movement of some kind and a political movement, and that they need to be separate, kind of equal, and and yet intermeshed if you really want to create profound social change. And I think that's why we're gathered around this table, is to figure out what is that musical element that kind of holds together a worldview, a religion and a politics, and how are all those things co-evolving these days in a very critical situation. I mean, it's no accident that we're starting to do this in 2020, September, <laughs> haven't got it on my watch, September 28th, is that what's today? Let's check. Yes, it is yeah. Monday, September 28th. Yeah, and so on that note, I'd be happy to talk to you guys any way you want to talk about some of these issues of benign reality, music, religion, politics. Well, I wanted what to... What is our strategy for our situation? I wanted to come back to the beginning of the because we started with a stanza of your poem mm-hmm. and you talked about your these ease the equality eden eternity ease and when you're talking about eden you're talking about music as a sort of salve or a, or a glue or a balm or a cure a cure what is your eden look like like when you walk when you walk down main street right Millerton, which is where we are, Millerton, New York. What does that musical Eden look mm. like? How does it manifest? Is it children? Is it children beating on objects in a rhythmic manner? Is it? Yep. Is it a path band? Yep. It's, it's all those all those things, and I think that's why the the Jackins notion that there's all this fog, tifos, gook, as he calls it, gobbledygook, the gray blanket. The, he's got hundreds of different ways of expressing this atmosphere that we're in that capitalism and militarism and all the isms have generated this fog that we work through. It's there in the streets of Millerton. It's there wherever we go. And at the same time, this notion of a benign reality behind that is behind every building, building in Millerton or behind every person you meet in the street is that possible ray of sunshine, that possible moment of conversation that could just change your life, that each person carries within them an accumulated couple of billion years of evolving life on this planet summed up in their person, in their life experience. So Millerton, Lakeville, Salisbury, they all have 
different personalities in my mind. I'm a Lakeville guy, and so I distrust Salisbury. (laughs) I'm worried that this is even more terminally quaint than, uh, than Lakeville. And Lakeville and Salisbury compared to Millerton, where there's a whole variety of people that you're just not gonna meet in Lakeville or Salisbury. Two miles that way. Yeah, two miles over the border. Somehow this is New York. And Lakeville and Salisbury are the last gasp of the most Connecticut part of Connecticut, if you think about it that way. There's a wonderful joke about Connecticut, Connecticut. (laughs) I see things of the children knocking on things. That in Connecticut, Connecticut, the people are so cold fish, so Yankee, so you know protestant roots yeah protestant and pious and silent and shut down in some basic ways but puritanism and calvinists uh... (laughs) connecticut connecticut is where those folks are at their worst and so they have to send their children into hartford to be raised by italian and jewish families (laughs) to warm up that's how that's how connecticut connecticut you know, has solves its problem is by finding warm, you know, familial, open-ended uh, Italian Americans and Jewish Americans who can at least get their kids through those first few years of life and maybe maybe help them become all they can become. Because if they were left in Connecticut, Connecticut, the terminal quaintness might get them early. How deep are your your roots in Connecticut? Oh, pretty deep. Pretty deep. My mom was uh, born in Lakeville, that big old Holly mansion. And um, she was off to to a prep school when she was 13 or 14, something like that, because she got a full scholarship to be kind of a piano player and a, a, a lively participant in Abbott Academy. And so I have this sense of her roots right there in Lakeville. And then my dad's roots are off in Germany. His parents came from Germany, from Frankenbesch. They were both from the same small town. They were both from farming families. And uh, my grandmother, who was a big influence on me, was from a family that still believed in the spirits and trees. And she came to America confidently, ready to marry my grandfather, Charlie Kyle, uh, because he would drive a horse and wagon through the woods without fear. He didn't, he wasn't afraid of the spirits and trees. My grandma tells me this when we're, I'm out, you know, weeding in the garden and she's sitting there in a chair and waiting for some peppers and tomatoes to come her way to make some food with. And she just started talking to me about what life was like back in Frankenbest, Germany. And I later in life, when I was working with Native Americans who were very full of, you know, the idea of the spirit in trees, the spirit in animals, the different taboos and totems and so on that they still carried among the Seneca and the Onondaga. And I was able to pipe up and say, you know, I'm not so far from that. My grandmother knew about the spirits in trees and knew that she was going to go to the new world with somebody who was skeptical about that and not afraid of the spirit world so we're, we're all not so far removed from that same sort of spirituality 
And everybody walk on the streets of Millerton to get back to your question of how do I see a place like where we are. That Eden. Yeah. It's got an Edenic quality. It's got a pagan quality to it. We've got trees with us still. The sun rises every day like it did a thousand years ago or 20,000 years ago. There are these benign realities behind all the fog of war and fog of militarism, fog of capitalism, fog, fog, fog of advertising constantly. And you can't look at YouTube anymore without having advertisements pop up in the middle of a musical performance. Have you noticed that? That happened a few months ago, I think. You used to be able to look at things all the way through. But if it's got any kind of number of hits, there's now advertising just pops in and you have to cancel it out. I mean, this is the, that kind of fog or tifos or what the ancient dogs called the currency, to facing the currency. We're constantly being faced by a currency or current events, current crapola that fogs up your vision of Millerton or of Lakeville or of Salisbury or of any local community that has this potential to be Edenic but isn't that Edenic today because we got so much um, technology, false values, domination values, so many, so many things in the way of just being real and being close and, you know, six feet, six feet feels close <laughs> in the midst of the COVID world. We can be as close as we are at this table and be looking for, seeking, in search of the primitive, the prime, the Edenic, the one you left out of the four E's was essence. The essence of the situation or the essence of, what's, what's Johnny's essence? Are those not five E's then? Well, well E's, E's, he calls them is, the four E's, E-A-S-E. <laughs> oh, I thought E's, E-A-S-E was one of the yes. No, E's, it's essence, e, equality. Oh, make it five E's. I'll, I'll go for five. Five? Essence, <laughs> equality, Eden, eternity, the four E's, E-A-S-E which with as a lowercase e at the end. Charlie's been giving me his poems and writings for years and decades, so I'm kind of used to his style of pun. Is it punitry? Puns? And, uh, punditry? He, <laughs> punditry? I don't know. Yeah, trying he, uh, not to be a pundit. No. If you, well, maybe we'll post a picture of this so people can see when they watch the video, but he's got all sorts of different sized fonts and the E's is capital E-A-S, lowercase E. What, what's that about, Chuck? Well, I'm trying to, in my lowercase in the eight point case, it's all on the 12 eight path. I put the poem itself in 12 point and the intro material or whatever got me there when I woke up in the morning and put the date and time at the top of corner. I'm always thinking of this as not slam poetry not call and response church, you know, sermon poetry. This is poetry on the page. People are going to look at it on the page, and I want to get as much message, as much meaning, as much uh, mystery and ambiguity, too. You know, why, what, why did he put that? Just the question you had. Why did he put that in lowercase, Chuck? Why is that little e over there? <laughs> you know, I want people to kind of enter into that page and think about it and uh, have some fun. Every, every pun, every rhyme 
matchup is a little bit of a chuckle or a little bit of chuck trying to um, bring you in. I'd read into your your formatting of of E's as capital E-A-S, lowercase E. And with the idea that E's, like you're, you're presenting a big idea, but it's E's, so at the end of the word, right. we can like take a breath and ratchet it down and go to mm-hmm. lowercase E's. Wow. See, I never thought of that. So that's, that's, that's being an English major. Ha- <laughs> that's what I want to happen is that a Zach or a, or a Johnny G will say, well, that could mean. You know, what was your initial intention of the meaning of capital E-A-S, lowercase E? To sum up that decline, I'm making each word smaller. Ah, I see that essence. So it's quality. kind of like uh, you know, this is as t- tight as I can get it. Eden, eternity, equality, essence, for ease. Mm. You know, well, are you still paying attention? Are you in there with me? I wanted to I think that's what I was intending, but it, it can have Zach's interpretation or mm-hmm. yours, and I think a poem is supposed to do that. It's supposed to have a pretty clear intent when you look at the whole thing or look at the title, you get the intention of it and then it's intention. It's, it's needs to be, you know, a little tense between mm-hmm. me and the reader. You're not, you haven't got, you've got more references because of all the years that you've been watching me flounder around with this and that. And uh, Zach is, doesn't have quite as many of those common references. My daughter keeps telling me every time I get her on the phone, Dad, you gotta, you know, I understand most of this poem, but what about all those other people? I said, well, they'll, they'll get it after a while. You got it after a while. And if there's plenty of poems and I keep pumping them out over the time, somebody who reads any more than 15 of them will say, oh, he's always working those parentheses. He, those are the arms of love and embracing and containing and nurturing and he got that from that crazy guy over in Nigeria gypsy full stop sun and moon parentheses you see parentheses on my page of poems that's sun and moon got it from that Mm. megalomaniac in Nigeria I wanted to check back in on something you said very early you're talking about um, something you got from Malcolm X Mm mm-hmm you referenced religion and religion I think for for someone like me religion's like a ping word someone says religion and I, my ears perk up and I go oh, I'm, I'm not, not so much, sure uh, I'm not so well, sure you were you were doing fine until you mentioned that but then right. because we're so sensitive to to, sure. to to language but then you spoke more about an animistic mm-hmm. uh, paradigm Tree spirits, et cetera, right. et cetera. So th- is that your is that your vision for uh, spirituality in our world? And because I'm 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 very skeptical, and I'm often very cynical about how Americans approach uh, this this syncretic New Age religion thing that we're mm-hmm. doing. Yeah. It's a, it's astrology, it's essential oils, it's <laughs> it's the the right. supermarket of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so where do we, how does that work without atrophying our critical capacity? I see the critical, skepticism, criticism 
interpretation, hermeneutics, all of the kind of analytic stuff as a toolkit as, um, and you, that you should keep handy but not live your life in terms of, that everything that takes apart or, you know, you separate the etymologies of the different syllables in the word, all that pulling apart and analytic and, and divisioning and what's the word for a, a live anatomy lesson where you take some live frog Dissection. apart. Vivisection. Vivisection. You know, that, that's the worst of it. It's torturing some creature to find out how when does that heart stop beating or whatever. All of that is tools that specialists and professionals, doctors, uh, people preparing to teach a certain kind of analysis of in chemistry or mo- how do the molecules fit together. All of that is valuable work. I was just listening to something about Galileo on the radio last night, Brecht's play. Very good play for for what science is about. All of that rationalism, science, specialties, comparing what different specialists say about the same object, et cetera, et cetera. It's all good. It's all what a university is about. But what's missing, I think, in almost everybody's lives is some sense of synthesis, pulling together, uh, that this language of ours is growing and it's growing more capable of just simply evoking feelings about being connected to each other. And so that supermarket of spirituality where everything gets commodified into crystals and, you know, buy this and you'll be more spiritual. Well, (laughs) that's kind of of what comes with the territory these days. Everything is being commodified or being uncommodified. And the beauty for me of us being musically relational, you know, knowing some different parts of musicking and so on, is that that musicking is is the glue, is the putting it back together again, is a new synthesis each time we play, each time we improvise together, whether it's one person improvising or two or three or four, get more in there, it can get chaotic or it can just get over-organized. But that exploration is what makes the religion and the politics, um, I don't know, reciprocal or, or mutual or collaborative, collaborands, humo ludens collaborands. And that collaborands might, maybe should be the first concept, that we're the collaborating creature. We really know how to cooperate and we can figure out how to cooperate and create Eden and Millerton that'll be different from Eden and Lakeville, and maybe even Salisbury can become Edenic. <laughs> giving you my Lakeville Salisbury, you know, division. To me, that's they're they're separate entities. I resent that the town hall is in Salisbury. You know what I mean? How'd they get the town hall and the <laughs> Scoville Library? You know, the first library. Is there any like functional? autonomy between Lakeville and Salisbury? Well, yeah, the, there's the people who work at the lake, you know, in terms of people being employed in different jobs. Um, Salisbury Town Hall has some people who's, you know, are on the payroll to make sure that the lake works right for people in the summertime. And there's a, you know, a, a kind of an ethos or 
subculture of Lakeville people who are proud of being from Lakeville or happy that they're in Lakeville rather than in snooty or somewhat Salisbury. Ah, okay. There's the dynamic. Yeah, it's it's a class. It's a very subtle class distinction. You know, that Lakeville had the factory. Lakeville used to be Furnace Village. I'm calling it Furnace Village again. You know, that's our roots is that my grandpa's factory that went bankrupt in what, 1926? Before the crash, it was down the tubes Mm. for the knife factory. Did you hear German as a child? Yep, my grandmother was speaking German to my dad sometimes, and I regret that I did not say to my, how, what, what, what did I know? I didn't know all the things I know now. If I had it to do over again, I would have just spoken German with my grandma. Because I, I visited her most every day after school. She was on the way home from uh, home school. And I would stop there and she'd have something delicious cooked, you know, curly pancakes, we call them, crepes, or uh, kuchens of different kind, Flaumenkuchen, plum plums in the middle of some pastry. Ooh, I can taste it as I, <laughs> as I think about it. And if I had learned her, my German from her, I'd have this Frankenbesch Hessian German. When I, when I identify myself to somebody, I try not to say German, I say Yankee Hessian because they're from Hesse and they're farming people. And I'm, I, I love that. I love that the, the German part of me was agricultural and peasant and um, knew about the spirits and trees. So Eden was can be there in Frankenbesch. It's it, every locality, every village has this uh, Edenic potential of of autonomy, of energy and food, um, being plentiful. In, in Lakeville, I th- often think we went and looked at the the old factory. Um, they got all this water coming out of the lake year round. It didn't always come out year round. My, I've looked at my grandfather's journals from when he was a young man, and they had to close that factory in wintertime because the ice would block it up or there wasn't enough water coming through the factory pond and down the hill to move all that leather binding the machinery together. And so they just close it down for January, February. And what, had, what did the workers do? I don't hear my grandpa worried about that. But in the dead of winter, all of a sudden you don't have a job. You're laid off for two months. You decelerate. How did that work? You eat the, you whittle down the, you live off the preserves. Yeah. From yeah. the fat times. Yeah. And people all canned or they did. Now we want, now we want perfectly even all yeah. months of the year if we can. Right, we, you know, not close to the seasons. Those seasons were crucial for everybody back back in the day. So as I look at my little niche there in Lakeville, I really, I plant trees every year. I just ordered a bunch of stamen wine saps, four of them. What are those? And they, I got them from the National Arbor Movement. I came across that, and they were offering apple trees for 15 bucks each. I said, hmm, I'll just plant them along the, property line there and maybe they'll prosper and give me some fruit down the line. Charlie Appleseed. 
Yeah. Charlie Seed Seed, you know, every every kind of seed I'm interested in to see whether it can grow here. And my big success this year is a French pumpkin called, what's it called? I've just learned how to pronounce it from a video yesterday. A French pumpkin? De Provence. It's from Provence. De Provence. And it's Mousquie. 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 M-U-S-Q-E-E. Mousquie. Hmm. Musk pumpkin, or it's like it's a it's like a melon. It's um, it's a I've got five of them out there. Maybe a sixth one hidden away. They're about this big around, great big green lobes that I'm gonna have to get tanned if you really want the best quality meat inside. And they're eaten raw. You make slices into this thing, a twenty pound pumpkin, and it's got all this bright orange meat that is sweet when it's raw it doesn't have to be cooked so it's more like it's more like eating a melon yeah they say that the taste i'm dying to taste it i've got picked one by accident kind of norman picked it out because i guess the thing had cut and unhooked anyway i'm waiting to see if that'll ripen up get tan brown and i'm hoping that it's um and it's a keeper I'm really interested in apples that can keep six months, which the stamen wine saps can. You can keep them cool in a refrigerator. They'll go for months. And the same thing for this um, Mousquie de Provence. Am I pronouncing de Provence, right? Well, the, it would be de. De. Yeah, de Provence. Ooh, look. He talk that French, he talk. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it's a it's a great pumpkin, and I've got five of them. I got about a hundred pounds worth of uh, sweet orange meat if if it all works out. So I'm wow. keeping my fingers crossed that there's going to be um, another two or three weeks for these things to ripen before the frost really hits them. Mm-hmm. Hoping, and I keep looking for things that woodchucks won't eat, that squirrels can't ravage, that um, rabbits and mice and chipmunks don't want and it seems like arugula kale some of these you know stronger tasting Mm -hmm. greens you can plant those anywhere and of course the um tuctus what do we call them nettles Mm. nettles are all over the place around this part of connecticut and new york means you have good soil they're they're incredibly good as greens. Yeah, they're superfood. Mm-hmm. You can make pesto and tea and right. Nettle nettles. tea is great. It's all good. So I'm trying to figure out how to be a hunter gatherer in my two acres there. That's great. If I can, uh, you know, increase the different kinds of pears, the different kinds of apples, not have to spray them. Which old fashioned apples will produce year after year after year? I don't know. You don't know until you try. I read in a Michael Pollan book, I don't remember which one, that uh, an apple from eh, something like 1950s America or 1940s America Mm -hmm. had roughly, uh, this is all paraphrasing. Uh, More nutrients. Yeah, like three times as much iron as a a modern apple. Mm -hmm. We're, We're producing more, we're producing greater quantity of less nutritional content. Yeah. We're just diluting it. Super farms out in California, like the rose, fertilized and like the rose is just losing its scent slowly. 
genetics. Right. Carnations have lost their... I can't find a smelly nah. cinnamon carnation anywhere. I would hope that a Charlie backyard apple would still be a wild, nutritious apple. I think I'm guessing that Pollen is talking about... Michael Pollan is talking about, like, you know, agribus- yeah, factory-produced apples. I'm guessing that your wild apples are still quite nutritious and beneficial, yeah, whereas yeah. I think Michael Pollan is probably talking about, you know, big agribusiness apple mm-hmm. production and mm-hmm. how it's fertilized and monoculture and it's losing nutrients. Yeah. But I'd like to think your apples are still probably great. I've got nutritious. golden delicious that, you know, none of these trees have been sprayed not even with musk oil or whatever you call it. Um, there's different ways you can do a kind of organic spraying program. Where everything is natural. You and can it, use clay. Uh, yeah, and you can mulch better. You know, all kinds of things you can do to improve your your apples and to combat particular funguses or blights or whatever. And I've been listening to that, learning a little bit about it, but I don't really have a, a local expert and I would love to find somebody who can prune pears. I, I look at these pear trees and I say, they need pruning, but I don't know what, you know, pears make all kinds of verticals and you have to pick one and then, and I don't know the, I don't have it even in my hands or my eye-hand coordination. I look at the pear and I don't dare cut it. It, it surely knows what it's doing, <laughs> you know? So I'm hesitate to, to do that pruning of grapes, of anything. Uh, pruning been, is a challenge. They've been interacting with the hand of, of humans for right. a long, long, long time. time. They don't even exist without us, a mm-hmm. lot of us. Yeah, and they need pruning. And, you know, grapes just won't, they'll just produce leaves if you don't um, cut them back uh, each year. In Greece, they cut cut uh, of grapevine back to just a couple of buds. Wow. Because they got you know, five months of no water maybe on one of those Greek islands. And so they want just a little irrigation to carry it through to the grape. And that's going to give them intensity of flavor. It's going to give us fewer grapes, but better grapes. And the way they think about that is just to be totally brutal with the with the clipping each year to get it back. To, so you see these grape arbors with thick vine like that Wow. For about eight inches, and huh. then it's boom, and then it's shoot, and then two or three things come off of it, and that's the vines. Clever. And those roots go way down so that they get whatever residual water from the winter rains is down there two meters deep. They're going to get it. They're going to hold it. This is a great, you know, uh, direction to go in terms of benign reality because wherever you look in the world even in you know areas of 10 inches of rainfall and people making adaptations to that how do we get vegetables to grow what have we got locally that no other island has in the Aegean or that we have most of or could have more of and so they've gradually get more and more local greens onto the menu at the restaurants in this island that Angie and I go to whenever we can. And the food gets more and more interesting, more and more local, and people are realizing, ooh, we have a local pig here that is small and lean and full of bristles, and they don't have that pig 
on Seraphos. They don't have that pig on Amorgos. And so, they, you know, there's people who prize that pig, I think. I hope they're still there. <laughs> and chickens, you know, chickens have been on that island. Sheep have, have long-tailed sheep that I never see anywhere else. I don't, I don't know how special the um, domestic and wildlife is on Sifnos, but Greece is full of diversity in flowers and in flora, not so much in animal life, but the, the position of that peninsula between Asia and Europe, it's gotten a lot of things over the years have drifted into Greece mm. and because they have so many mountains and so many different ecological niches north to south and east to west, they have more variegated plant life than any country in Europe. Wow. Really? Even, wow. to, even the fact that they've had an eco-catastrophe, the first one was around 1100 BC. What was that due to? That was due to, um, I think, uh, competing fleets and taking down too many trees for masts and building ships, and they gradually deforested mm. their mountains way back when, around 1000 BC. And they had a dark ages before Hesiod and Homer. That was very there was four, recurring. There was four centuries of really hard living that everybody looked at as the era of lead or the era of, I don't know, they called it different names, but it was a, a genuine eco-catastrophe. Cutting Bef down trees is, I, I read a good chunk of uh, Jared Diamond's Collapse. Yeah about how societies mm -hmm. collapse and ecological collapse. And yeah. it often begins with trees. Right. Over-harvesting of trees. Yep. No, deforestation is the same as desertification. Eventually you get deserts. And everything that's happening now with this COVID says don't get into the rainforests. Those last rainforests in Africa and in South America are the lungs of this planet. You get in there with monoculture of any kind, whether you're turning it into pasture to make hamburgers or you're turning it into a Brazil Soy. nut plantation or whatever. Any plantation, any big farm is death for species. Or it, it makes those bats that are the reservoirs of so many different um, COVID-type viruses Bats because they're eating insects or because they're eating a broad variety of fruits, fruit bats. There's over a thousand varieties of bats, species. And they all have reservoirs of different viruses. Who knows which one of the next one is going to be worse than uh, SARS or MERS or COVID. And every invasion of a rainforest is giving us new viral spillage from wild to domesticated animals or vice versa. You know, wild birds come through and drop off um, viruses to domesticated ducks and geese and so on in ponds in China. Everywhere you look, these, these viruses are spilling over. And that's because they're being pushed together into limited habitat. Or the plantation creates ideal conditions with no predators for certain kinds of bats. They used to be uh, having to worry about who was climbing the tree to get at them when they're sleeping. You know what I mean? All those, you could multiply that example by thousands of instances of forced interfacing 
So species are now confronting each other that didn't before because there was all that foliage and variety of other species in the way. The minute you simplify a rainforest, you're asking for big trouble because those things are going to, viruses are going to go from species to species to humans. And the more plentiful the species, us, more and more of us, less and less of the species variation, where are those viruses going to go? Hi, COVID. Who's coming next? You got cousins? <laughs> you know, I mean, those, those viruses are are adapting quicker than we can. And we've shown that we're not ready to deal with it. Yeah. And what do we do with the next one? I mean, I think capitalism is done as we've known it. And global travel is going to be very much more restricted. There's not going to be a bunch of airlines. We're moving toward local autonomy, local uh, independence, local... It just makes more sense to live locally as fully as you can. And okay, we'd really like to have some oranges at uh, Christmas time. They're going to cost you something to to travel. As they should. Yep. Yeah, as they should. And those things from other places. Now sending lettuce from California to Connecticut, it takes more calories and energy yep. than there are in the leaves by a multiple of 20 or something or 40. There's you know, the calories it takes to get that lettuce from there to here. It's so ridiculous. I, I agree with you that it makes it, this kind of decentralization, relocalization makes more sense. You're saying we're going in that direction. Can you sell me on that? Because I'm skeptical of well, the, that that's all where the, we're actually going. Sure. No, I mean. We should be going there. <laughs> right. No, I mean, this is the, again, the reason to sit around this table and talk and talk and talk about everything that has to do, you know, it gets encoded as climate change. That's the least of it. You know, this is loss of species. Huge thing you cannot replace. Every one of those species took millions of years to um, differentiate itself over and over and over again on the tree of life, or the, as quantum calls it, the tangled tree of life. That tree metaphor doesn't work anymore. These small critters, one-celled creatures and so on, it turns out they've been horizontally entering each other. You know, the, these, these I don't, what do I know about science? These viruses enter into a cell and kind of cannibalize it or make their way to the nucleus and change the nucleus of the cell, change evolution of the creature that they're in. We don't know the long-term effects of COVID may be terrible or wonderful <laughs> five centuries from now, never mind 5,000 years from now, because the time scales of these different life forms are so radically different that um, disrupt, disrupting that balance, you don't know what the consequences are. So one of my, one of my pitches is not just for slow food. We should put that in here. Yeah, slow food. I'll put that. I'll <laughs> put that in the outro. And slowing up everything, if we possibly can, till we see what the consequences are of this plastic or of that invention. Or we got what? How many thousand chemicals, man-made chemicals, substituting for natural chemicals, or 
intervening in different ways and all this. And being dumped into waterways. Yeah, it floats. It go, Everything's going everywhere. It's not just the viruses. The, the, the polar bears may be sunk because of PCB poisoning that comes up the food chain. The PCBs are not very plentiful in small organisms, but they, they cluster. I hate to use the word cluster F, but you know what I mean? They, they get, the PCBs change their nature as they get into grebes. All sorts of things. You know? Climb up mercury. Yeah. Microplastics. Mercury. Yep. It's pretty hard to decontaminate once everything has just been distributed right. out. I was and, imagining a dark, a dark future where the, the human organism over thousands of years needs plastic. I mean, it's very dark, right. but imagine that you need to get your like daily recommended value of plastic for your circulatory system to work correctly in because it's adapted in ten thousand right. years or something. Yeah, because it's adapt or die. Yep. And the the benign reality that I wanted to start with here, all of a sudden, you begin to say, "Gee, Harvey Jackins could talk about that in the twentieth century." And indeed, the sun rises every day, and the universe is continuing to expand, and a lot of huge variables are not going to disappear. But we may disappear because our part of benign reality is uh, shrinking fast. You know, we're losing variety, we're losing species diversity, we're losing cultural diversity, we're losing, losing, losing. Linguistic. Wow, yeah. I'm hung up on that. It's not as important as ecological diversity. But <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. When I went to look up Harvey, after I sort of stumbled back into Harvey on this one thing that I gave to you guys, I went and looked up his, his you know, Wikipedia entry and so on, and he has thought so clearly about this um, benign reality making each person responsible for the universe or in charge of the universe. He said, if you think about it, our world, our individual worldview, our outlook, how we think about the galaxies, the life on Earth and its proliferation and diversity, each one of us has a different take. And it's a taking charge, a taking responsibility for the whole billions of years of life's evolution. Because most of those other life forms don't have a conscious take on that or an understanding scientifically or even um, the feeling for the diversity. They know they're part of the ocean or they're part of the coral reef or they're part of, we've looking at, at all of it and then we've got telescopes looking out and microscopes looking down to the teeny tinies. We're the ones with the, with the, with the scope, the, the range of, of, of experience, the range of knowledge. And now's the question is how are we going to enjoy this to the max? And a slogan I got from Angie, we don't all have to be here at the same time. There's this notion, you know, that we got my cousins over here, this one, but um, but um, we got extended family. If we only use it, we've got this, we've got that. And we, we need more of us because we got the right idea. Well, if everybody's, if every people on the planet, we need more Frenchmen. Do you? Do you really need more Frenchmen? No, you know, more Americans Frenchmen. with the with a heavy carbon footprint. 
And you see governments make incentives to have more kids in France. The Greeks haven't been reproducing themselves at a rate that... that, um, Last I knew, France was the only country in Western Europe who was stable, who was maintaining its population. 2.1 children per mm -hmm. woman. Mm Mm-hmm. No and one else. That, and that, that's that. They, the reason that there was all this concern is that they're diminishing, you know. And then, oh, we got all these immigrants coming in, Muslims from Morocco and Algeria and so on and so forth, people from our African colonies, on and on and on. It's wonderful, you know, we, we all come to gay Paris. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, we're overwhelmed. We're We're not... The France that we were, they're not assimilating like they used to. They're now, evolues are not evolving. And look at our soccer team is all black. You know, what's, what's, what's going on here? And people get anxious about their very, their very essence, their, their Eden, their eternity. You know, are we going to be all right here if we let all these people into our... Europe's struggling mightily with that. Yeah. France, so France, is France, is, France is unable to sort through it because they have a they have a de facto ban on even addressing these issues. Yeah, the belief in a neutral a neutral Frenchness. Like there are no there there are no racial statistics in France, for right. example. Right. Like uh, intersectionality is a non-starter. Because there's no sections. We're all French together. We're just all... Aren't we? We're all French, right? Yeah. But right. like maybe I'm not going to hire Abdel for this position. We'll take Francois instead. Right. But we're all French. Yeah, it's a fictive yeah. unity. See, but they're also looking at the two facts that I think are really interesting about racism. And that is that we are, in fact, biologically, all one race. Fact one, mm-hmm. we are all can intermarry and have been intermarrying for however many million years mm-hmm. we've been co-evolving. Once humans came, and that's fact two, we all came out of Africa. Mm-hmm. So you put those two facts together. If everybody said, "Well, science has told us, and I guess it's true that we're all one race and we're all out of Africa," so I guess we can all be Africans together. What's the problem? African, me, you know, I mean, it's like um, we haven't begun to convince everybody that it's one race, one face, one destiny, one one big village, one African dispersal. Those basic facts, it seems to me, would get us pulling together if we just spent time on that and then celebrated the cultural diversity that of, that each individual, right? Johnny G puts together his... Sunday evening program, and nobody else in the world can put that quite that thing. Whoops, excuse me, that that thing together. I get excited thinking about it. That um, you know, one person can figure out a way to make a fifty or a hundred people happy and put tips in the jar. That's amazing, and that's the beginnings of a culture of um, Route Twenty Two. Make it true on Route 22. Charlie's referring to my uh, weekly gig at the local Cider Shack where I play cover songs for patrons. Right. I think there's a lot of people across the country who 
in the world who do what I do. Yep. <laughs> and they all do it differently. True. Because they all have different, um, you know, influences and different requests. Yep. You know, somebody doing this in Austin, Texas is going to have a whole different set of uh, covers that need to be done of some local characters. I can do, yeah, I can do a version of so-and-so. And you're doing it in a particular place. I mean, obviously, where you're from is always special to you, but we're also from we're from a, a place that's at a, a golden distance from New York City, mm-hmm. which is yep. a major driver, obviously, of culture and economics. We're two hours north of the city for the listeners. Yep. Yeah. So, but we're in a purely rural setting. So, mm-hmm. this is not any town USA exactly. But all it isn't, it isn't. The particularity of one locality is also inundated with global consciousness in this day and age. And in, in the previous century or two or three, you'd be amazed at the cosmopolitanism that you can find in a tiny Greek village. There'll be some guy, like we had a friend, Steve Salomon was in a little village, uh, a fishing village that later has now become a big tourist place. Land has gone from, you know, it's a hundred times more expensive than it was just uh, 50 years ago. Anyway, he's there up in Halkiviki in this little village. And there's one guy there who spent four years in Seattle between 1910 and 1914 and was part of the key strike that uh, won, you know, key labor rights or something in Seattle. And he's there speaking his broken English in this little fishing village telling Steve Salomon, who's, you know, coming from a working class background in Buffalo, about how important unions were in Seattle, uh, you know, 50 years before when he was there. And it was, it's as vivid in his mind in that little fishing village. It's more vivid than when if he'd stayed on in the USA and had a life in, in, because he's looking at that slice of life when he was young and hardworking and made enough money in a few years that he could come back to Greece and buy some land and um, you know be a villager again. And there are lots of people in Greece who spent us time in the USA and went back and treasure that moment. And they were leading incredibly sophisticated lives here and back there because they get the newspaper from Athens. They hear the radio. I mean, in this 20th, 20th century, 21st, you can have your your village cake and global too. You know, you can have as much knowledge of the planet as you want from any locality. And we're just discovering in this COVID situation that most people can work from home. The world Many is flat. people. Hmm? The world is flat. That was a book by, I think, Thomas Friedman. Just like you're saying, you can, from any town in the world, yeah. with an internet connection. Yeah. You know. Now, whether that's a good thing, how much of your time you want to spend, but I believe it's within our capacity as humans, in a way that it's not for any other creature on the planet, to, to plan ahead, to think long term, way out. I think it's an immense opportunity. Yeah. Because the the sexiness of the city 
is undeniable. And we've crossed that half, more than half of the world population living mm-hmm. in cities. Mm-hmm. You can see it here. In Europe, it's clear as day. Everyone's going to the city. There are no services in the countryside. Yeah. Everyone wants to go to the city. And it's a tough life there. Mm-hmm. And, it's, right. and it's saturated. But everyone's still going. And this is it's a boom-bust cycle. But I think that the internet is offering this fresh possibility to recolonize mm-hmm. rural areas. Right. And yeah, we don't want to be glued to the screen all day, but it is offering, mm-hmm. it is offering something special to us. It's, yeah. a, it's a unique opportunity that we have right now. Mm-hmm. And this is where, you know, if you could get, and I thought of this in Greece a, a lot because the, the Zorna and Daoli trios, two Zornas and a Daoli, two cool. double read, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sh- what are, loud What are we shows. talking about? <laughs> talking about music in northern Greece. Okay. <laughs> where gypsies, Romani people, have had the specialty for centuries of providing the music for weddings, saints' days, any big event. You want to have that double read, two double reads, making all these tartini tones, these overtones mm. buzz in your head. You get within nine, ten feet of two of these guys playing those horns and you're getting a psychedelic experience that mm-hmm. Grateful Dead people never have heard of. <laughs> you know, this is like buzz, buzzing harmonics wow. and, and things come from one horn. When the guy knows what he's doing, he can generate that in your head. Tones that he doesn't hear, you're hearing real loud because of the angle that he's in with some glass behind him, sitting at a table, you know, with a bottle of Uzo and his horn, he can put some sounds in your head that you've never heard before and that he's not actually hearing himself. He's hearing something else in his head. But you've got a craziness that this sound can give you, especially when you've got a whacking drum, bass drum going with it. Steve Feld, my compatriot and colleague, said, I've got the the best equipment. We're going to get the best recordings of two Zornas and a Dauli. I said, I, I bet you don't, but let's see what happens. And of course, he couldn't. The two horns and a bass drum inside a room creates this reverberation that, that is like making things go crazy in the digital world. Sometimes I got lucky with an analog recordings, and the musicians in the village says, Why didn't you take the core recordings that you made and see the Castro where he really had a great night? And I listened to those back, and boy, you had a quality. That was so good. Why didn't you put that in the CD? I said, well, we we did the we thought we had the better equipment and the better, you know, the most experienced recording person. And you know, it's all about luck, mm-hmm. about um, the moment, and live music, improvised live music, is providing that for people, and nothing else can do that. People don't realize that or think that or feel that, oh, I've got to get over here and hear Johnny. But they, there's some urgency to having a live improvised music synthesis in a tradition where you know it's worked in the past and now it's going to work again in present time and you'll remember it years later because they, that's the trio that played at my wedding and that's the time I got so badly smashed on Uzo and had to be taken out <laughs> on a stretcher. But before that, I remember this particular song. 
Oh, and the other thing about these three guys is that they can produce this music that can be heard in Slavic lyrics to that song, Vlach lyrics, or kind of Romanian dialect lyrics, Greek lyrics, Turkish lyrics. The same trios are all over Turkey. Gypsies playing the same exact music. Maybe a little Latino. And Turks and Greeks don't, you know, they're not, <laughs> this is oil and water, you know. They're not, oops, they're not happily, peaceably together in their own minds, but they're sharing the same music. Amazing. That's happening a lot in the world. Right. Where the supposed enemies are sharing a lot. Yeah. Well, Serbs, Croats, and Bosnians. They're all eating the same yogurt. They're all sharing the same instruments and modes and Zorna and Dauli music in parts of Serbia and Croatia. Anyway, they're sharing a lot of stuff, including the language. And that's what makes Serbs so dangerous, is that they can't stand the idea that somebody speaking their lingo is a Muslim. We can't tolerate that. We've got to obliterate it. We want to, we want to kill them all. If we could get rid of the Bosnians, then we could be happy. We have a tough time being with the Croatians, but they at least are Christians. <laughs> you know, they're Catholics and we're Orthodox. Whew. We have a lot of trouble, but at least we're not Bosnians. You know, this, they're, they're the same people with the same language, genetically, linguistically, and a lot of culture in common. But over that one religious difference, mm. religious differences, because that's the ultimate essence or values or in those religions, and that turns wonderful people. I used to be so in love with the Serbs because in Buffalo, they were the one people in the whole Western New York who, when their women were yipping and howling over the music and dancing, they'd say, wow, I'm in a Serbian village. This is happening in the mountains of Serbia. It's happening here in Buffalo. How can that be? How can they hold on to their culture so tenaciously that you know in your heart these folks are might just as well be back in the homeland? All the other people coming to the folk festival at the Greek church, singing along with records or reading sheet music to revive their Russianness or their Lebaneseness or doing belly dance music instead of their sacred music because they don't have any sacred music anymore. They've been in America too long. You know what I mean? You see all different kinds and degrees of assimilation, and then all of a sudden these Serbs come out, and they're, they haven't changed their Serbian soul. We have no sacred music. We've been in America too long. <laughs> oh, no. A thought. A thought to take away. A thought. How are we doing for time, guys? I wish I could tell you I didn't. You know, I you didn't hit somehow the timer? didn't hit the timer. So I think we're probably about probably at about an hour. Oh, I bet we're more than that, give or take, maybe more. Time flies. Yeah. Did you? Well, we we can figure out how to put it put edit this into a a radio program, yeah. or we can just keep talking and um, let it be um, in the Johnny G version of the universe. Did so, you want to finish your poem? No. Um, we did the first paragraph. The Johnny yeah, we'll G pick universe. up. It, we'll pick it up again in the next unit for what I'd like to be a radio program. But this can also be your. We can inter. You know, anytime there's th the three of us sitting at a table, this can go in three different directions. That's how I'm thinking of it. 
it's going to be useful to me to remind people of books that I've written or be useful to somebody teaching a course in ethnomusicology or sociomusicology or whatever. And, um, and it can also be a longer conversation about anything that either one of you want to take as a theme or a title for a podcast. As I understand the podcasting, and I think this is something we might want to talk about a few minutes now, is that it can, we don't know where the future of this is. This may become very valuable 100 years from now, not so valuable now. You know what I mean? The beauty of getting these things recorded, circulating, is that somebody in Greece can pick up what we were just talking about. Digital artifacts. Yeah. And they circulate. Or they we're sitting here celebrating the local, you know, Zach asking about what's different about Millerton when you come here. Do you see that locality emerging? I sure do. But it's also cosmopolitan layered, I call it layered identity. I think everybody's layered at this point. And surely in Greece they're layered. Because everybody has been in everybody else's business for millennia, not just centuries, millennia. Athens had a lot of people speaking all kinds of different languages. And Greek was a lingua franca, a lingua greca, kind of holding them together. But Diogenes came from Sinope. You know, the different philosophers came from the coast, the Ionian coast of uh, Anatolia, Turkey today. And there was no Greece back then. It was just city-states with different dialects and so on and so forth. Cultural diversity is just amazing and it was there within language groups. All the Yoruba people that we now think of as one people because they have now had a standardized language dictionary thing, um, they were all in different kingdoms. Oyo, Ibadan, Lauren, Iesha, Ilesha, where the, the good Cuban groove comes from. That was one city with its own, um, you know, king and advisors and so on and so forth. Little, little city-state civilizations with everybody doing a little farming and coming into the city for its excitement. But everybody in the city of Abaddon, not everybody, but Traditionally, everybody had relatives who were more on the land outside that city than they were in the city. They come into the city for the market and then go back out and live three days, four days for cultivating stuff or doing their crafts. Or you're coming into adulthood, so you you move to the city. Yeah. And you come back. And then you go back. and, And that's why the villages of Greece are filled with old people They've been in the city. They come back and kind of retire to their, the old home. And that's, that's not good to not have your, you know, kids and grandkids with you. And that's, I don't know, that's going to get rebalanced, I think, in any sustainable future. We're going to have rebalancing of extended family, rebalancing of Everything that we have now classified into, you know, economics, politics, religion, blah, blah, blah. There's a major tension with individualism 
and multi-generation family. Yeah. Young people don't want to deal with the, the, the supposed inconvenience mm-hmm. of living in a multi-generational household. Yeah. It's difficult for yeah. individualistically minded people yeah. to do that. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. I mean, individual- but I see it like I live in Spain and I see it in real time. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I don't know how it stacks up to Greece in the present day in terms of traditional family values, but I imagine it's somewhere along the same, yep. somewhere in this a similar paradigm. And there's a there's a major tension there. A lot of people who grow up in traditional societies, young people, are itching to get out, to be able to close their door and lock it, mm-hmm. and not have your aunts and your uncles dropping in. <laughs> <laughs> right, and a lot right. of us who grew up in individual, very individualistic societies, mm-hmm. are just starving for community, yeah, for that feeling, yeah. But it's hard for us to. Well, that's what that's where I'm from, yeah. Right, I yeah. grew up in a Puritan country in a lot of senses, with my nearest neighbor at 400 meters away from my house, or a quarter mile, or however right. you want to say that, and. That's it's difficult to to give yourself to community when mm-hmm. that's not your operating system, right? And it's and vice versa. Mm-hmm. No, I, I constantly see it in Greece that what the Greeks call a pereia, pereia, a pereia is three to fifteen people. Usually, it's five or six people mm-hmm. who meet frequently to eat together or to party at night. They in go Spanish, that's a, a peña. Yeah, that's a pena. Pena, yeah, is a little friendship group. That's, yeah, that's pretty tight. It's a crew. It's a tight crew. Yeah, that's right. like your, they're your people. Yeah, yeah. And these these things used to meet in drugstores and talk books and talk this and that, or they'd meet in a one particular restaurant where there was always a guitar handy, mm-hmm. and you could sing cantadas instead of laika. Or you go to this restaurant and there's going to be somebody playing a bazooki and there's a baglama that anybody can sit in and plink along with. You know, there's this kind of um, collective sing, singing phenomena, songs of the table. You can't eat and drink in Greece traditionally without having some singing going on after the meal or between courses or whatever. Can you repeat the word for the, the crew in Greece? Perea. Perea. P A R E A. How would how would you spell that, Angie? Perea. P A R E A. Perea. Perea. That's what we need in COVID times. Everyone needs a good Perea. Yeah. Your bubble. Mm-hmm. Yep. The a bubble. Little, little bubble to be in and be social 20, and intimate. The twenty where people century, know each other and yeah. trust each other. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Or you can try. I can trust so and so to always object to whatever I'm about to propose you know what i mean and and it it is funny it is funny as it's so predictable yeah my brother-in-law angie's younger brother who unfortunately has passed on he was capable of walking into a taverna or a restaurant in his adopted village of hortiatis that's where his wife came from and he's living there he was capable of arguing with two other tables and holding a conversation with us, I've got to talk to these people. Boom, 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 and he sends some he just scathing insult. Interject over here. And, yeah, he yeah. just says, you, I, I, if I have to hear you even 20 feet away t- saying these stupid things that you're saying, I can't eat here. I, I won't be able to digest. 
or you know, wow. and, and then and then this guy said, so well, tough shit. You know, a, a big curse comes back from this guy at the other table, but he's meanwhile he's get he's getting a fight on with somebody at a table twenty feet over there. Before you know it, Milt's up out of his chair and telling this one off and telling that one off, and when he's finished, there's not much left of those two other tables. Oh, yeah. People sort of settle back down. It was Miltos. He just, you know, had to cut cut these other people down to size before he could enjoy his meal with his wow. uh, family. Awesome. How's your Greek? Hmm? How's your Greek? Terrible. Terrible? I, you got I, words, though. You oh, got, yeah. I can, I can make my needs known in, mm. in any, most any situation. And, uh, and I'll always plead for somebody to tell me in English what, what's happening. And now there's so many Greeks that speak English. It's that's a battle for yeah. for English speakers worldwide. But it is it is very important to have my little pigeon Greek. I, it pops up in my poems. It pops up all the time. Oh, the Greeks have a word for that, and we don't. Mm. And they have a curse for the that you know they they need in their world. And then some of their um, kind of curse words or you know slang put downs become absolutely essential just like mf in african-american talk for ray charles talking to david ritz he's going to use that mf word many 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 times um or or equivalents mr franklin or mammy jammer or whatever he's going to be saying those words in greece malacca has this one word malacca you know What's that malacca it's just a, like a bastard you it, malacca. It's a mean, it, it means somebody like has it. masturbated excessively and softened their brain. Wow. Really? Well, the is that belief that's is that from? that's malacca. malacca. And you can you can, walk, you can walk along the street in Greece and hear some guy on a telephone. Every one of those little kiosks, you know, the cubicle where they get the newspapers and stuff. There's a telephone. You pay your six pence or your two pennies or your drachma or whatever. You put down your money. You pick up the phone and you make your call. This is before cell phones and so on. But it's still going on. It's it's fun to go to a periptero, this little thing, and pick up a phone and talk, call somebody. And we were listening to this one guy, and he says, hey, you know, meaning that, that, that thing, that phenomenon, foolishness, soft-headedness. Malachias. Ah, very malaka. Now he's talking to the guy. Yo, you sweet soft head. You know, and so he held a conversation for a few minutes without ever using any other word. <gasps> My like he is. <laughs> oh. You know, and, and his, his moods were changing, and they were exchanging information, and all he was saying was Malacca different ways. Amazing. What? Yeah, me. she now she wants to go off to Greece. I want to go too. It reminds me of that that episode of The Wire where there's two detectives investigating a murder scene and the only word they say to each other is shit. Yeah. For about five oh, minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> shit. There was also, do you remember from high school that documentary about the F word and how... Uh, it's like how, every part of speech. Yeah, how it can be used. It's such a diverse word. It can be used as an adjective, a verb, a right. noun. It's, it was this funny uh, thing we downloaded off like Napster back in the day. There's this uh, stand-up comedian. Maybe you've seen him. He does bits about swear words in English. And because he's foreign and has an accent, 
it's particularly funny because he's musing yeah. on like what is the where's the logic here like what is dead ass <laughs> yeah like my son came home from he was nine years old ten years old and he says you know I think my teacher is saying F it you know frequently during the day is that possible mom and she says Gamoto yeah that's what she says Gamoto Gamoto over, over and over again <laughs> And when she's erasing the chalkboard and it doesn't erase right, she goes, ah, I got water. You know, she's, she's just saying it a lot. Is that what she's saying? And, and she says, yes, she's saying we, we, the equivalent in the U.S. can't be said on the radio. You know what I mean? But a school teacher with eight, nine-year-olds can use it all day long. Wow. And that's because the verb <laughs> to have, you know, is also the root of Groom, gambros, is the groom. Gamos is the wedding. Gamoto is, wow, <laughs> screw it, yeah. right? And so the teacher's just saying screw it in a casual way, but you can also say you know to the Holy Virgin, to your entire, your to your gamoto soy suit ice. <laughs> Screw your entire kinship system. Your extended family <laughs> is screwed in my mind. Some of the stuff they say in Spanish blew my mind. I couldn't imagine, I couldn't conceive of mm. saying something it. so vulgar in mm -hmm. English. Yeah. Just like right. they're, they, uh, you know, they poop, they, they shit on everything. Make caga to yeah. familia. Everything. <laughs> everything. On the, on the mother that birthed you. Yeah. Damn. Right. It's brutality. Yeah. Wow. That's just savage. You said anything like that in English, people would become highly offended. Right. Very quickly. Well, that, that's why Angie was very free with the F word in her prime. And I would say, Angie, this is not Greece. This is not... Berta's like that. My, you know. my fiance. Yeah. She's like my, my friend jokes that she talks like a trucker in English. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking to me too much. Right. Well, one person's terrible word you know taboo word is another person's mm -hmm. every day well it's part of our language the groom the wedding the ba -dum, ba -dum, and the know. thing that happens after the wedding yeah <laughs> well one person's podcast is another person's radio show right so there you Ooh, go that's a good slogan i'm looking for a slogan to come out of each one of these well this is this is benign reality today i think we all recognize it yep. when we feel it, see it, hear it. And Harvey insists. Um, where did I find that? And this this is quotes from Harvey Jackins. Each person is completely in charge of the whole universe. Whoa! Sounds like quantum mechanics. And sunlight streamed through the gap when they finally got to that principle. Sunlight streamed through the gap. It turned out to be true, says Harvey, even though it seemed wildly improbable at the same at the time we first said it. Each person is completely in charge of the whole universe. It's a great place to end. <laughs> we'll take it out there. Thanks for listening, folks, to On the Path with Dr. Kyle. We'll be back soon. Hey, don't call me for a prescription. Enjoy being in charge of the whole universe. Continue.